Daniel, if you would, just a moment. We'll uh, give a chance if uh, folks would. Uh, chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. Luke uh, chapter 19, in the first ten verses, is the story of uh, the Lord Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. And uh, it's one of the New Testament illustrations of conversion. And uh, there are several in the Bible. In fact, uh, years and years ago, I did a uh, message, a series of messages. I think I did them on Wednesday night. Uh, and they were the conversions of the New Testament. And uh, we briefly looked over. Let me get this on, Daniel. We briefly uh, looked over them, and we briefly looked at this one. Uh, but in the last several weeks, in devotional time, I have gone over again and again and noticed some things that I didn't say before. It should have been noted. And so this evening we'll begin to read the story. But then I want to talk to you about questions that the New Testament asks concerning salvation. But to begin with, in Luke 19, verse 1, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. I keep reminding you, but it's important to uh, let this uh, sink in, that uh, when you see that reference of publicans uh, in the New Testament, uh, these are people who, um, for lack of a better word, uh, we would talk about franchising, franchising the Roman tax system. That is, you could franchise it. You could go in and pay down money to the Roman government, and they would give you a franchise for a district. And what would happen then is you would have this much money you had to turn in to the Roman government, and all above that that you collected, you get to keep. So almost all publicans eventually became rich. And this is not the first one, but this is not the first illustration about publicans. In fact, uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, refers to publicans elsewhere in this book. And his point was that publicans were very popular with the Romans to get these franchises out because they got all their money and they didn't have to take the ire of the Jews. You know, the Jews were under thumb, as we say. They were pretty much under the authority of the Roman government and they hated it. And they wanted to, in fact, one of the whole ideas of wanting a Messiah to come along was to, to get them out from under that thumb of the Roman government. And so when a Jewish person went over and bought a franchise from the Roman government to collect taxes from fellow Jews, he was hated uh, as bad as hate could be. And nobody liked the publicans, so much so that the rabbis called them all sinners. And their consideration was there are no publicans that can be saved. If you were a publican, rabbis would say, and they're talking salvation is different than our salvation, but they'd say you cannot, you'll not go to heaven. If you're a publican, you're a sinner, and you cannot get things squared where you'd be acceptable to God. That's how much they hated him. So in this case, you have a, a publican, and now he has become rich. And in verse 3 it says he sought to see Jesus, and Lord willing, next week or the week after, I'll give you what I believe is a basis or a possible basis on why it was he wanted to see him. Did he, had he seen him before? Uh, had he heard him before? Why was it that he wanted to see him? I think there's an answer in the Bible, uh, at least possibly an answer. We'll talk about that one. But he sought to see Jesus, who he was, could not for the press, 
because he was of little stature. Verse 4, he ran before him, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, looked up, saw him, said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. He made haste, he came down, and received him joyfully. And then we'll stop there for the reading presently, because there are many people who, when uh, you read their explanations of the text, would tell you that if, in fact, Zacchaeus got saved, and we would say, yes, he did, they'd say, that's where it happened. He received him joyfully. And they would say that's based on John 1.12. You know, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. They say they believe that Zacchaeus, and next week or two we'll explain to you why they say that, uh, why it would be that we would say that's when he received Christ. What was it that, that when Christ came to him, when Christ spoke to him, what would have prompted him then to hop right down and in effect, be converted. We'll talk about that on another occasion. What I would say about the issue of salvation, the question was about whether publicans could be accepted to God, whether this person is such a wicked sinner who has betrayed the Jewish community, how could he ever be acceptable before God? Well, obviously the Jewish community didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel. They, they were looking for another Messiah, and oh, by the way, they're still looking for another Messiah. They still don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Messiah, Yamashir. They don't believe that. They believe there's another one coming, and the next guy that comes is not going to come in with a timid, passive kind of attitude. He's going to come in and take the, the world, as it were, by the throat, and he's going to rule the roost. That's what they think. So here, in this particular case, it is a, a contrast of what the Lord Jesus Christ does in rescuing Zacchaeus from his sin and showing these Jewish people in this one particular that Jesus doesn't have to rule with an iron fist, and he doesn't have to grab anybody by the nap of the neck or by the throat. He can just speak to him, and something in what he said changed Zacchaeus' world forever. So we'll talk about that on another occasion. Let me now, for, for the now, take you to, and as we closed off the last time, I even made the point about, children coming to faith in Christ. So don't you forget what we said when we close the service because it's very, very important. And that is this, that we so often as adults talk to people about children uh, having to understand more of what the Bible says like adults. The fact of the matter is the Bible said, Jesus said, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of God or heaven. The fact of the matter is, he said, also in that context, that we adults have to become as little children to get into the kingdom of God. So whatever it is that children have, it's not that we try to strip them of that. It's that we become like them in this one element so that we can actually become children of God. So instead of telling children, you know, you, you have to grow up to get saved, the wiser thing is for you adults... You have to become childlike. There's a certain sense of which that's true in Zacchaeus' case, and um, I'll let you in on a hint. Uh, most adults don't go around climbing trees for any reason. The fact is that he ran ahead of him, 
he went out ahead of Christ, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree, and he began to look to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, may I say to you that that's something children would do. That's something childish. That's something that a person to do that would say, I don't care what they think of me. I'm more interested in seeing Jesus Christ than I am that they think I have lost my mind. I don't care what they think. There's a sense in which that's exactly how you have to come to faith in Christ. You don't care what anybody thinks about you. When you get up from a pew and you walk down an aisle and you say to a pastor or, or a personal worker, you say, hey, look, I, I'm, I, the Lord spoke to my heart, convicted me of my sin, and I want to trust Christ as my Savior. Can you help me? You don't look around and say, hey, what are these people going to think of me? Well, they think I'm, I'm stupid or crazy or an atheist or a pagan. Uh, what are they going to think? If your heart's been convicted of your sin and you really want to know Christ as your Savior, and he's really done a work of conviction in your heart, you're not going to care what they say. I don't think Zacchaeus cared a lick of what they saw about him. And so he was childish, probably. And uh, did he shin his, skin his knees getting up that sycamore? Maybe. Uh, did he tear his robe? Maybe. Maybe everything a child would do. But the fact of the matter is, when it came to the end of his rendezvous with the Lord Jesus Christ, he received him joyfully, and his life was never the same. And that's why it got into Luke chapter 19. Three questions that I call your attention to. The Bible speaks about salvation. Let me take you to the first one. It's in Matthew chapter 19 and uh, verse number 25. Matthew 19:25. In Matthew 19:25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? That uh, context, context deals with the issue of uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And uh, in saying that, the disciples were somewhat taken aback by that. They said, then, uh, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? That's a good question. Who can be saved? And these disciples read into the comments of the Lord in suggesting that there are some people who could not. That's not really what the context is pointing out, that there are some people who cannot be saved. That's not what he was saying. It was just talking about how difficult it is for some people, and especially people who have something else to depend on rather than the Lord. You know, um, if a person gets to a point where he is self-sufficient, he's unlikely to think of his need of forgiveness or his need to be saved or born again or what have you. He, he's not likely to think that because if he sees himself as self-sufficient, he's going to depend on himself to meet his, all of his needs and he's not going to worry about what he can't do. Because a person has to come under the conviction that he is lost and that's an interesting word in and of itself. When the Bible talks about uh, they came to seek and to save. In fact, that's, uh, that's um, uh, part of the ideal in verse number 10 of Luke 19 about the story of Nicodemus where it said, For the Son of Man come or is come to seek and to save that which was lost. The fact is he did not come to save people who are self-sufficient or at least saw themselves as self-sufficient. He, he, he's not going to save those people. He came to save lost people, and this text says so. 
So when a person sees himself as lost, he becomes a candidate for salvation. As long as he sees himself as self-sufficient, quite able, quite capable of taking care of himself, meeting his own needs, uh, he's not going to turn to the Lord. Because he doesn't see himself as having a need. But if he ever comes to realize he's lost by the description and the explanations that the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ himself gives about man, and that he's born a sinner, as David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When you understand that, you were born a sinner, and in effect you were born lost, and that's why man is not, it's not capable of saving himself. There's nothing in man that will recommend him to the grace of God. So therefore, this thing of being lost is a big deal. And in fact, that's why you hear people say, well, before you get this guy saved, you have to get him lost. Well, you don't really have to yourself, but what you do have to tell him is what the Bible says about him and describe him so he sees himself from God's perspective. And God's perspective was he came or sent his son to come to seek and to save the people who were actually lost. So the first question is, who then can be saved? Look at the second one, and it's, and it's in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 13 and verse number 23. Luke 13, 23 asks this question. It says, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, and then it goes on to verse 24. So the question is, are there few that be saved? Well, uh, we know, so to speak, the rest of the story, and you know it, is that um, the way that leads to um, eternal life uh, is, a, is a narrow thing. And not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is going to go to heaven. We know that. Not everybody that tells the Lord how much they've done, how much they've prophesied, how much the work they've labored in, that doesn't mean anything with the Lord on the basis of salvation. And on the basis of salvation, it suggests they don't understand that um, those things don't count. The only time that works counts is after you've been born again. So as long as somebody's throwing out all that they've done, expecting God to look at that and give them credit for it like you were selling scrap metal, then you're not, you don't understand. The Bible said that's, that just doesn't mean a thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trying to make a deal, and he doesn't make deals. He's looking for people who understand under the conviction of God's Spirit that they're lost. And for those people, he said the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save. There are few people who come to that point. I know everybody in the world may say they're saved, but the Bible denies that. Denies it on several counts. But he says that it's a narrow way. And it's few that find it. And the fact is that we know that uh, they don't find it because they don't respond to the seeking that the Lord does. Luke chapter 10 or 19 and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. They don't uh, respond to his seeking. So they do not get saved. There's a third question, and it's in the book of Acts. It's the one we're probably the most familiar with. But it's a question about salvation. The first one in Matthew 19, who then can be saved? In Luke 13, are there few that be saved? And in Acts 16.30, the Bible says, And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Who said that? You know, 
Philippian jailer said that. So when uh, they'd had the earthquake and so forth, and, and he came in and he said to the uh, apostles, and he simply said to Paul and, and uh, who was it, Silas? Silas, Silas was there. He said, uh, what must I do to be saved? Well, obviously, something took place in that earthquake event that made this guy recognize that he wasn't right. And if, if he was going to be spared, something needed to transpire here. I mean, there's no sermon that we hear about. I mean, he may have heard Paul and Silas singing songs and praises to the Lord at midnight. He may have heard that. And then he absolutely saw this earthquake, and he absolutely saw that all the prisoners could have gotten out and walked away from the prison, and his life would be on the line. He knew all that. But the fact is, Paul and Silas said, hey, do yourself no harm. He pulled out his sword, maybe going to fall on it. And they said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We're not leaving. The only way you'd say that is if you knew somebody else was in charge and they could get you to walk out of here a free ticket and you didn't have to worry about being chased by the guards or the local police. So Paul said, just keep cool. Everything's fine. We're not leaving. And this guy says, what in the world? What must I do to be safe? What, what would give me what you guys have got going through just what we went through with this earthquake event and all these prisoners who could have taken a hike and didn't? How do I get to this? And so right there, right then, they asked the question, how or what must I do to be saved? That's the great question uh, of the ages in regard to salvation and uh, people being born again, that's uh, what you like to hear. You like to hear somebody come along and say to you, maybe tonight or tomorrow, walk right up to you and say, uh, hey, I know you go to church, and I know you're a Bible-believing person and uh, a member of a local Bible-believing church. What must I do to be saved? Here's a question for you. Could you tell them? Could you tell them? Let's say you don't have to tell them. Let's say you get to go home and you get to write it out. How would you or what would you tell them they must do to be saved? Well, one thing I would tell you, you must be careful not to add to what the Bible says a person must do to be saved. Be careful. You remember, uh, in fact, we'll refer to it later. I'm not sure we'll get... I'm pretty sure we won't get to it tonight. But there's the passage about the publican and the, the Pharisee, you know, that prayed. And they were on the street corner. And uh, I won't say a corner. I'm not sure they're on a corner. But they were on a street. And uh, the Pharisee looked over at this publican. Remember, now he's a publican. He's a guy who, who has a franchise from the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jewish people. He's not a nice guy from the Jewish perspective. He's on, the corner, or he's on the street, and he's praying after this Pharisee over here is thanking God that he's not like the, the, the publican. You know, I am not like the trash of the earth, this low-down, sorry, wicked publican. I'm not like this guy. Here's all the things I do. And the passage is, I believe, in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And this Pharisee lists all the reasons God ought to be impressed the Bible says that the publican didn't so much as lift his head but smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now watch carefully. The Bible also says this man went down to his house, what? 
What's the word? Justify. Justify. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't he have to understand the creation story? Nope. Doesn't he have to understand that you have to explain in the Gospels? Nope. Nope. What does he have to do? What, what does he have to understand in order to go down to his house justify? He has to do exactly what the publican did. He recognized that he needed mercy from God, and he asked him to give it. God be merciful, and he claimed himself, I am a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake, as it were. And I've heard people pray that very simple prayer, and they didn't, you know, you know, didn't go into three, four, five steps to it. They just said, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me and save me for Christ's sake. And I say to you, they're sitting in churches this evening. Yea, they're standing in pulpits in this country. And those people have been saved by the grace of God. So I say be careful when you start to sit down and ask, answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Here, and here's the deal. If you know somebody that um, you have questions about whether they're born again or not, and maybe you just don't have the, um, I don't know what you even call it, grit, boldness, confidence, assurances, certainty, whatever it is, it, you just don't quite have that to confront them or, or maybe they wouldn't necessarily be up to you talking to them. Maybe they may be bedridden. They may not feel so good. But you could sit down in a letter, and you could just bare your heart and tell them why you're doing what you're about to do. And then the latter part of that letter, you just lay out the gospel and tell them Christ died for their sin and that all of us were sinners and that you're not telling them to do anything that you have not already done as the Spirit of God spoke to you, convicted you of your sin, and you ask God to have mercy on you and save you. And in your letter, you would urge them to do the same thing, and you'd tell them that you're going to pray that the Spirit of God would bring that kind of conviction to them that they would turn in childlike faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be people who can't, uh, they can't you know, they can't really, what you say, uh, can't tabulate if you stood in front of them they might not either be able to hear they may not be able to clearly understand they might have a hard time if you were going to stand before them and and sort of reason with them but if you put it in a letter they could go back to the letter time and again and read the same questions the same answers and begin to see and just maybe the spirit of the lord would be pleased to convict them of their sin and bring them to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what must I do to be saved? Great question in the New Testament and a question that um, every believer ought to be able to answer and ought to be able to write it in a letter to share it with somebody else. And uh, I challenge you this evening. Ask the Lord to show you or bring to your mind, lay on your heart somebody that needs to hear the gospel from you. And you sit down prayerfully, prayerfully, and ask the Lord to help you to put it in words so they could understand that it's coming from your heart and from the Word of God, the Scriptures themselves. And just tell them, you know, this is what I did. I, I just called on the Lord, and, and, and don't make it scholarly and don't make it theological. Just simply make it what the Bible says. Nothing more than what the 
publican did when he smote his breast and simply said, God, be merciful to me and save me. You see, if that's sincere, if it's real, if it's genuine, and if it's Holy Spirit prompted, uh, it's the real deal. And I think we put too much, too many trains on the track to try to tell people they got to know all of this before they can come to Christ. That's just not true. I'll be sure with you, I was 11 years old when I came to faith in Christ. And I have, no, I have never looked back from the time my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Fitzgerald, sat down in a card room and I sat in front of her and she whipped that Bible around that could hardly be read the print and shared with me the gospel out of it. And I got up from there after I had asked Christ to come into my heart and I've never looked back to say, I'm not sure I was saved. She never mentioned a lot of stuff that I know now. She never even said the word justified by faith or by grace. She never even referenced the thing about sanctification in the future. And she certainly never talked about being glorified one day. I didn't know any of that until I began to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. What I'm saying to you is don't make it harder on somebody who's just a sinner and who's under some sense of conviction or maybe hasn't even heard a good, clear presentation of the gospel. Just put it in its simplest form, write it to them from your heart, and tell them that you're doing it because you care about them. And let the Holy Spirit of God bring them to fruition and let them know that just as surely as if they see themselves as lost, that Jesus Christ came into this world to seek and to save their kind. Here's two or three things. We won't get started much and very far in it, but uh, here's some things I'd like to call your attention to. Look, if you would, from where you are, wherever you are, Luke or whether you're back over in um, Matthew or Acts, turn back to uh, Romans chapter 1. You know the passage well, and uh, I just want to make a point. <clears throat> there are four or five things about salvation the Bible brings up beyond the questions. One of them is it's clear that everybody could be saved. But here's what the catch is. It's in Romans 1 and verse number 16. The Bible says there, For I am not ashamed, Paul writes, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, that says that the, the gospel is something that is the, indeed the power of God and that's the authority of God also along with the energy of God in, in bringing people salvation. And it is brought to them on the basis if they believe. Believing is essential. Even in the case with the publican standing on a street and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There'd be no use of uttering those words if there wasn't some sense of believing. He has to believe that God would have mercy and that if God had mercy, he would save him. So in this context, and what Paul writes is that indeed, uh, if people believe the gospel, they can be saved. And uh, I believe the gospel is wrapped up in more uh, of the references of New Testament conversions than giving all the details to it. I believe there are people who, who don't understand all the details of it, but they uh, recognize the ultimate part of it. And I believe believing God is a step in that direction. Here's another verse. It's in, you can stay there in Romans. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the Bible says that. 
So when Christ died on the cross, he was hoping, wanting, desiring that all men would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the first thing I want you to understand is it's clear from the Bible that all may be saved. So you shouldn't have a person who walk up to you and say, well, I, I just don't, I don't think I can be saved. You say, that's, that's foolishness. That's absolutely absurd. Now, you don't know whether he can be saved or not, but you can, you can know this. There's a 50-50 possibility that he could be saved on the spot. But we know that he has to come under conviction under hearing the truth. We know that. And he will have to respond to that conviction by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he does, under conviction of the Spirit, not emotional stress and not emotional motivation, but under conviction of Bible truth, whether it's written in a letter that you send or I send or somebody shares or whatever it means it gets to them, if the Holy Spirit uses it, brings conviction, and this person is convicted of his sin and says, you know, I want to be saved. You, you, may, have, you may have thought he stating, I, I just don't think I can be. I'm a very bad person. Well, they, the Lord specializes in saving bad persons. So that's no excuse. That's, not, that's nothing. Jesus Christ, in fact, in the Old Testament, Isaiah said, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot, cannot save. You know, there's nothing about man that, that God looks at and says, oh, my goodness, I can't save this guy. That'd be an insult to the blood of Christ. So he can be saved. Men can be saved. The Lord wants them to be saved. So that's the first statement. Second thing is this. It's also clear that not all will be saved. Let me show you. Look, if you would, back to Luke. Dr. Luke wrote this, and he wrote it pretty clearly, I think. Look, if you would, in chapter 23, excuse me, in chapter 13. Chapter 13, look at verse 24. Luke 13, Luke 13, look down to verse 24. Luke 13, verse 24, the Bible says, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Verse 25, When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Verse 26, Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Verse 28, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. The fact is, this passage of Scripture indicates that here's a bunch of people. In the context, it's a, a setting up of a, a story about the Jewish people and their response is what it amounts to. But these people are uh, basing their right to acceptance on the fact that they've actually eaten and drunk in his presence. And uh, some suggest that was in a religious context, not just um, they were at some restaurant eating and drinking and Jesus Christ happened to be there. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about some kind of religious setting where the Lord Jesus Christ was present and it could well have been a temple feast, but whatever it was, 
They used that in saying, hey, we were present when you were in that location for that religious event, and, and we ate and drank, and you were over a table from us, and we saw you. Oh, so what? What's that have to do with it? And then they also threw up the ideal, and, and you have actually taught in our streets. That would tell you that he was uh, probably opening the Scriptures by memory, and he was talking, teaching, speaking, and they happened to be in the vicinity. Now they use that as a basis why they ought to be acceptable to the Lord. And each of the cases of the explanation is given, I know you not whence you are. And um, this passage of Scripture, by the way, when you get down to verse 24, that first word in verse 24, uh, there are people who are of an opposite faith than ours as independent Baptists who say this verse teaches that you have to work to get saved because the word strive there carries with it uh, an ideal of exuberant giving out or working out some kind of energy. You have to do something to get this done. That's not actually what it's saying. He's talking in terms of with an invitation that might be given of you responding to it and not lingering and not standing back and not sort of waiting or putting it off. That's really the idea in the context. So the fact is it's not encouraging. It's not um, pushing, promoting uh, works salvation. Um, verse 24, Strive ye, enter into the gate, for many say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. The, really the truth is the word able is a, is a stronger word in the text than the word strive is, because the idea of being able is it's something they have no ability to do. And that's the truth. In and of man's self, there is no ability to save himself, none whatsoever. So the ideal of striving would be to listen, to receive, to embrace what's been given to you as instruction, and so you respond to it as before, believing, trusting, depending, but not on yourself and not on your works. So in each of the cases, the emphasis in verse number 25 is, I don't know you. And then he does it again in uh, verse uh, in verse number 27, I tell you, I, I know you not whence you are. And verse 28 is sort of the conclusion of it. And in this case, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it seems very obvious um, these people um, didn't realize that was coming. You know, uh, that's true of lost people that you know and I know. They don't know what the end is going to be like. They would depend on us to tell them, you know, do you understand if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you go out into eternity without him, do you understand what lies ahead of you? And uh, most of them would, would laugh at you or me explaining what the Bible says. Uh, they don't know anything about the judgment of God. They don't know. Uh, they talk so much about Jesus being so loving and so gracious and so kind, and he is. But they leave out this one factor that the, the book of Acts brings out, that all judgment has been given to the Son. All judgment. The Bible says all judgment has been given to the Son. Jesus Christ, this loving, kind, gracious Lord, is in charge of carrying out all judgment. So all these people who go around and they're always uh, talking so much about the Lord Jesus Christ's loving side, they need to also be talking about his judging side. And his judging side is more revealed in this text of Scripture than many of the others of which they would take. There's a verse, let me uh, I have just a moment, let me uh, 
me give you, just read it to you. It's Mark chapter 8. It says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That really is in accord to what Luke 13 is about because these people were uh, eager to live their lives and do their thing and, um, as we would say, focus on themselves. And then the day came that um, they're confronted, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ confronting them, and they begin to tell him why they should be accepted by him or accepted by the Father. And he says to them, none of that works. None of that will count. They could have said, we keep, we keep all the Ten Commandments. He'd say, that, that doesn't count. Well, we go to church on Sunday. We go to the synagogue every Sunday. He'd say, that doesn't count. And he'd say to you, you need to strive to enter in. You need to listen to what we've been saying and the invitation that we've been extending, and you need to respond to that by faith, and then all of this would be taken care of. You won't have to worry about it. But there is something in man and has always been there that man wants to have a part in getting his acceptance with God. He wants, he wants God to give him salvation and give him a ticket into heaven, but he wants to help pay for it. And um, part of the Old Testament with the issue of bringing the sacrifices uh, actually encouraged people to do that. To this day in uh, New York City, there are Jewish people who sacrifice goats and uh, I've told you before, in Tennessee at the Faith Baptist Church, if you were to stand on the front porch of the Faith Baptist Church in Sparta, Tennessee, part of their yard runs into a goat farm. And uh, our family has been there, and uh, as we've been in the services there, when we walk out the door and you look to the left, you see a great big field within, oh, 75 feet of the front door of the Faith Baptist Church. And what you see in that field is just a whole field of young goats. And if you go over there and you ask that gentleman who years ago, uh, years and years ago, his family was there but uh, wasn't quite as big and so forth. But when he was asked, he said very simply, all these goats will be taken to the Jewish community and he named a place in New York. And he said, we have a, a place where we back up our truck and we will have a chute and those goats will be tied in the feet, and they'll slide down their chute, they'll be put into the room, and there'll be the, the ropes, and such on those animals will be cut loose, and then one by one, those goats will be sacrificed as the week comes on. And when you ask the guy, he said, well, I don't really know a lot more about that, I just know that's what they do. And when the pastor of the church there years ago asked him, he said, I don't know, but I'll find out. So when he went up to New York with the next load of goats, he asked him, he said, What's it, where do you do this? And they, he said, the, the rabbi in charge said, when we kill the goat, the goat is a gift from the individual offered to God that he then will accept us. Okay, there's a certain sense of truth in that, in that the blood would atone for or would cover, until Jesus Christ died in the New Testament, would cover their sin. They'd be acceptable on it. The only added attraction to it with rabbis was that it's really all the, they'll need. And when the man asked him, said, what, what's that mean? And he said, that means they'll be accepted with Jehovah God. And he said, meaning, he said, well, when they die, they go to be with him. And he said, on the basis of the goat they kill? And he said, yes. The goat will get you in. In fact, there's a, they have a little sign over one of them that says, a goat to go. 
you want to go to heaven among that Jewish group, you have to get a goat to go. You bring the goat, they kill the goat, you get the ticket. That's not true. But that's what the Jewish community was sort of born up with, that you had to do something to get God to say, okay, you come in. I just say to you that it's a blessed uh, truth for us that we get into heaven on the basis of the Lamb of God taking care of all of our sin. We don't have to bring a goat. You don't have to plead with God. All you have to do is recognize you're a sinner lost in need of a Savior and place your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He saves you. And He saves you on the basis of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, shedding His blood so that you and I have our sin forgiven. And there's a certain relief and refreshing encouragement to that, that it's true that Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and He made it white as snow. Tonight you need to rejoice if you have salvation. You need to rejoice you got it, but not on the goats you bring but on the work of the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who paid for it. We'll finish this, or at least continue this part of the message and go back into the story of Zacchaeus the next time we're together. I hope you'll join us for that. Let's bow our heads, and uh, we'll not sing. We'll be dismissed, but uh, let me thank you for coming and being here tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy we have in reviewing uh, stories of conversion in the Bible. And also reviewing the passages that relate to the salvation that you've made possible for us. We thank you that the Bible sets up the idea that uh, every person could be saved, but they have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, trusting nothing else. Not trusting Christ plus keeping the law, or trusting Jesus Christ and just trying harder, but rather trusting Christ and Christ alone to save us from our sin. I pray that you'll help us also to think in terms of answering the question, what must I do to be saved, and sharing that answer from your word and sending it in letter form or in an email to someone that we may have questions about their salvation and at least be an opportunity for us to tell them what you've done for us and what it'll take for them to have a right relationship with you. There may be somebody out there who will never hear another clear presentation of the gospel apart from what someone in this fellowship will do this week. So I'm asking you to prompt our hearts, mine included. If there's someone that we need to communicate this to, help us not to sit on it. Even if it's a a, uh, not-so-perfect presentation, it would at least show the heart that we have for reaching our family, friends, or loved ones with the gospel to sit down and to put the plan of simple plan of salvation in written form so the person that you've laid upon our hearts could read it again and again and again. I pray, Father, that you would remind us, too, not everybody is going to be saved. There will be people to whom we speak and people to whom we share the gospel who will not receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that's a sad fact. But I pray it won't stop us from sharing the gospel with other people who may. We don't know who will and we don't know who won't. But we do know we ought to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
I pray that you'll burden our hearts about that. Thank you again for our people and for their faithfulness this Sunday evening. And I pray you'll bless them. I pray you'll use them to point others to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. In his name we pray. Amen.